This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Robin Bourne. Robin is uh, currently a subject matter expert working for the Gormley Group. Robin is someone, for those of you who follow GSA, is someone who spent his career at GSA, someone known for, geez, Robin, close to 30 years. Yeah. So, Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. Uh, thanks for having me. I'll start off, just give a little background Uh I grew up in the D.C. area, you know, like a lot of kids uh, growing up. I wanted to be a contract specialist. So, <laughs> that's a, yeah. Yes, yes. Working government. That was my dream, too. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, years went by, obviously. And uh, after following the normal path uh, at a law school and working construction and landscaping for three years, uh, GSA called and offered me a job as a contract specialist in a uh, rotational intern program. And I started in what was then the Information Resources Management Service under Roy Chisholm in the Schedule 70. And uh, at that time, Schedule 70 was separate from the rest of the federal supply schedules, which were housed in the Federal Supply Service. When I started in the schedules, that first year and a half of my rotation, uh, they were just one-year contracts. And Right, and just, Rob, just a second, to give people a flavor of your career, you started there, eventually rose to be the deputy director of the IT center, you were the division director for policy in the the office acquisition management at FAS when, when you retired. So you, you had a long, and you worked in the GUAC Center for you know for a while as well. So you've had, you've seen all parts of GSA. Yes, yes, and uh, you know after a year and a half in the Schedule Seventy, I went over to the local telecom shop for a year and a half, and then actually I, I, I left GSA for a year and a half and uh, worked as a consultant because I'd been in IT. They gave me furniture clients, but the experience of working with industry uh, was invaluable because it gave me that perspective of business and uh, which I'd gotten a taste of a little bit working, uh, working before GSA, but having both perspectives is, is invaluable. So when I came back to GSA in 1990, uh, largely because I had, when I left, I was working, you know, Roy Chisholm was probably one of the best bosses I ever had. Just a great guy. Uh, he was still running the IT center, and I came back as a, a contracting specialist and a procurement analyst, and that was 1990, so several years doing that. The big change in the schedules uh, occurred in 94-95 when FARA FASA, uh, Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, Federal Acquisition Reform Act were passed. Uh, by Kling, or part of the Klinger-Cohen bill, and uh, that turned the schedules upside down. So we're headed, it had been largely a small purchase program. 
Uh, in fact, in the IT schedule, any requirement above $50,000 had to be synopsized. And the usual response was from a, a non-schedule company, we've got what you need, but we're not on schedule. And so it would a lot of, and also there was a price reduction clause that said, if you lower your GSA schedule price to a federal customer, that becomes your new federal supply schedule price. And so large competitive buys really did not occur under the schedules. In 95, we actually moved over to Crystal City from from 18th and F Street and joined the Federal Supply Service. Uh, and, and the world, as I said, as it was, changed completely because what happened was we were immediately assigned a marketing uh, individual, Chuck Papelka, and where we had had literally no interaction with the customer previously, we all of a sudden were interfacing with very large customers. Uh, and what happened was, in that Klinger Cohen bill at that time, GSA took some actions as well. They removed the maximum order limitation on the schedules program, which had been about $300,000 on most of the schedules. If you look at the DOD activities, uh, the big DOD buyers are never even considering buys that low. That's, that's a small purchase for them. So they didn't know anything about the schedules program. And so we went out oftentimes uh, at the prompting of industry when talking to DOD buyers and saying, well, why don't you try using the schedules now that it was unlimited with no maximum order limitation and the price reduction clause had been changed so that no longer would a federal sale trigger a price reduction and that $50,000 synopsis requirement had been removed. Industry promoted their schedule contracts and we went and talked with the DOD buyers and many other agency buyers and shared with them how the schedules could meet their needs, going over various features like BPAs and teaming and evergreen contracts where they could potentially have. Yeah. Yeah. Robin, it might be good to just lay out like some of the fundamental, whether it's going from mandatory to non-mandatory, the length of contract period, continuous open season, all those changes in that time period. Yeah, so a lot of things changed uh, in that 95, 94, 95, 96 timeframe. Uh, as Roger mentioned, blanket purchase agreements is uh, where you could create a subset of schedule contractors that would be put in place to meet a, an agency's uh, ongoing need over a period of several years rather than have to go out each time and do a separate procurement. Teaming allowed more than one schedule contractor to join uh, and and provide a total solution. Evergreen was the term used to refer to the fact that the contracts potentially lasted 20 years, a five-year base contract period with three five-year options. Uh, there was a continuous open season, meaning the schedule solicitation was always open. Uh, new, so one, one uh, dynamic that created was you had schedule contracts awarded literally every day and some expiring every day. And uh, that later became a, a bit of an issue when they came to near full term, BPAs in place became somewhat difficult, but we can talk about that later. There were uh, at the, maybe a big, one of the biggest changes uh, and uh, helped out by you, Roger, was uh, the addition of services. So 
uh, any discussions about that? There was some concern of whether or not uh, professional services and labor rates were commercial. And Roger wrote a white paper and supported the fact that they were commercial. And we added professional services to the IT schedule. There had been a TQM schedule that was services, but I think most people consider the addition of professional services to the IT schedule as when services were introduced to the schedules program. And of course that enables the, the provision of uh, solutions to customers through the schedules uh, using a combination of services and products to, you know, and a lot of large integrators uh, had schedule contracts and took advantage of that uh, in delivering solutions to their uh, government customers. You know, just to sum up this segment, so where, you know, with all those reforms and changes, you said it was a small program, it was a mandatory program. At the end of the decade, where were the schedules versus at the beginning in terms of overall sales? Well, I'll just, uh, I know off the top of my head that when we came over to Federal Supply Service in 1995, the Schedule 70 sales were about 2.8 billion. Three or four years later, we, we were at 15 billion. So in the course of three or four years, the, the sales tripled. And it was largely due to the fact that the the cap had been removed, no maximum order limitation, and the eyes had been opened to large government buyers who previously really couldn't consider a program that was had that limitation on it. Yeah, it was a, a huge transformation to, you know, I think the overall program went from about $3 billion to $30 billion in total, and IT did account for about half of it. It's an amazing transformation. And I think some of the, those fundamental changes are still relevant today. And I think we can talk about that in the next segment and start looking at where the schedules are currently and where they're going in the future and GSA as a whole. So I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Robin Bourne. He's a subject matter expert at the Gormley Group. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guest today is Robin Bourne. Robin is the subject matter expert at the Gormley Group. Um, Robin had a 30-year career at GSA, um, working you know, across all the current FAS programs, whether it's the IT GWACs, IT Schedule 70, you know, and also Director of Policy in the Acquisition Management Center, supporting all uh, schedule and contracting operations at the Federal Acquisition Service. Uh, Robin, you know, so GSA currently has a, a portfolio of IT contracts along with schedules, along with, you know, multiple ward IDQs like OASIS. You know, how, how do we get there and where do you see things in the market right now? So just give a little, little bit more history on how we got to the GWACs and all that sort of stuff. Okay. Well, it, it really goes back again to the, the mid-90s and the Clear Cohen Act. Uh, that act also gave the authority for GWACs, which were government-wide uh, IT IDIQs. And from that stemmed, uh, five or six agencies went to OMB and got the authority to establish uh, these government-wide vehicles, GSA, NIH, Treasury, Commerce, and a couple of others. And then as things evolved, you had the establishment of MACs, or multiple agency contracts, which are not IT-specific, and also a lot of 
agency-specific IDIQs, which meant you know, large, broadly scoped IDIQ contracts, which were used by a specific agency and were not available to other government-wide uh, uh, agencies. So you have now what you have is a playing field that is really you get too many players on the field. So if you're playing football, you know, you got you got you don't have 22 on the field. You got 75 players on the field, and you don't even know uh, who's on your team, uh, so to speak. Uh, and and I think one of the downsides of this is that companies are having to spend too much of their bid and proposal dollars going after the various IDIQ contracts. And you know, an IDIQ contract is really a license to sell to whatever community can use it. It's, it's not a guarantee. There may be a minimum uh, guarantee on the contract, but the big business has to be won at the task order level. And it just seems that too many now, and uh, I think some companies don't have enough BNP money to, to go after as many of the task orders as they would like. Right. It is sort of a, a vicious cycle in that you know you have lots of multiple board IDIQs and companies that think are put in a position, well, if I don't compete for this one, I might get locked out of a particular market. So, you know, have you is from your perspective, are you seeing as one of the, you know, that threshold of getting on the contract and how challenging that's become over the last few years in terms of bid protests and that sort of thing has just raised the stakes. How has that played out from your perspective? Well, I think, you know, you, you mentioned protests. Uh, one of the things that uh, is sort of interesting, when, when I started, large IT procurements were, were often protested because there was so much effort and resources devoted to getting, the, uh, winning the bid. If they lost, I often thought someone was saving uh, at least a job for six months or so while it was uh, in protest. And right, it used to be, IT protests used to be heard by the GSA. Board of Contract Appeals. Appeals, like a whole hearing process, discovery, the whole, you know, depositions, the whole nine yards. Right, and of course, in, with, in the IT area uh, especially, after all of the time, so maybe a year, year and a half for a procurement, another year, year and a half for protests, and guess what? you end up with an obsolete solution because technology changes so much in the IT space. Uh, and that was one of the reasons for the, the GWAC authority, uh, just that, to uh, enable agencies to put in place a smaller group of contractors, which would provide for manageable con competition. So meaningful and manageable, but not everyone and their brother, which you know, resulted in long uh, time to process the award and then the protest. So it was, and a lot, I think a lot of companies with a quicker process, they were less likely to protest because there was less time and resources invested in, in that effort. At the task order level. But to me, you know, in, you know, first just the, the historical note, you know, the Clinton Cohen Act also repealed the GSA Board of Contract Appeals Authority to hear protests. So it was yep. like GAO and the Court of Federal Claims. So, so I guess just listening to that is my, my, my thought, and I get your reaction to it, is it seems like to me now what we're seeing is that protest activity is back in the sense that it's shifting to that initial contract award 
you know, because of the stakes are so high that you might get left off a contract that people are objecting in the pool of contractors is, as a result is also getting larger and larger as a government, you know, in a certain sense, takes the path of least resistance and adds more people to contracts. Is that uh, what you mean? Yeah, I would agree with that, Roger. I think, I think what you've got is, uh, I think it's fair to say that most government commercial uh, requirements are now fulfilled through these IDIQ contracts. You don't have many, what we've referred to as full and open standalone, you know. standalone contracts. So there is a desire to, to be included in, in the group that's eligible for task order awards and uh, for the large integrators, especially that's, it's, a, it's critical. So their teams are trying to make sure that they have the ability to uh, compete for opportunities with every agency because different agencies have either different specific IDIQs for their, themselves or they have oftentimes a favorite yes. GWAC or MAC uh, yep. that they go to, sort of their, their, that's their comfort zone. Uh, and they, that's where they go. They might go to NASA Soup, they might go to GSA Schedules, they might go to Alliant or Oasis or, uh, Eagle, but they, they have a, they have a go-to contract. And so you need to be sort of on all of them. And it, it sort of begs the question, why does the government need to vet and qualify these contractors every single time? There's got to be, <laughs> right. there's got to be a better way. Yeah. And I have to ask you, how do you think best in class contracts, you know, where OMB, OFPP is sort of designating specific contract vehicles as, you know, more favored over than others. How does this play into the market? Does well, it sort of is going hand in hand with the philosophy of uh, category management. So the idea is that the government's a huge buyer. The government ought to buy in a more uh, collective manner, uh, maybe uh, consolidate requirements if possible. That rarely happens. Uh, it rarely happens even within an agency. But uh, the thought was that it might occur across agencies in some cases. And you know, a big part of that is the use of data. And so the contracts that are able to collect data and provide feedback and information to the customer agencies are designated best in class uh, and are sort of, uh, and there's policy, government-wide policy that promotes going to those vehicles first in, in considering uh, where to achieve your procurement requirement, you know, where to go to get your uh, requirements filled. So there's a, you know, direction to consider these best in class vehicles first. You know, in a certain sense, that's picking winners and losers. I mean, from your perspective, have you seen it like, to me, it, it raises, um, you know, challenges for small businesses. I think it also in increases the likelihood that people will object to if they don't get an award, because if I'm not on one of these best in class, you know, again, to your point earlier about being locked out of markets and having to be on all of them, the ones you have to be on more than any others are, are the best in class ones. Is that fair? I, I think it is fair, and I also uh, I, I don't know that the government actually is uh, really utilizing data uh, as effectively as 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 deemed, uh, and so that while they may be collecting the data uh, and therefore 
becoming designated as a best in class, I'm not sure that the the true value of that data is being realized. And so, you know, the, there may be a false distinction between the best in class vehicles and those that, that haven't achieved that designation. Right. I think, and I, th I think you are, are right, though. I think the biggest distinction is all about the data in terms of category management and best in class. And it'd be interesting to see how that evolves over time. But now we do have to take a break, Rob. And then when we come back, I'd like to focus a little bit more on perhaps schedules consolidation, where you think the schedules are going, maybe a little bit about the so-called unpriced schedule concept, the idea of focusing on competition at the task order level rather than negotiating prices at the contract level. Sounds good? Sounds good. Okay. Well, my, I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Robin Bourne. He's a subject matter expert at the Gormley Group and a 30-year veteran at the General Services Administration. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guest today is Robin Bourne. Robin is the subject matter expert at the Gormley Group, a 30-year uh, career veteran employee at the General Services Administration, and I've known you for those 30 years pretty much, Robin. <laughs> and we, yeah, we've collectively seen a lot of changes at GSA. And now let's just talk about, the, you know, I think the most recent, you know, sort of fundamental, you know, framework change with the GSA schedules program, and that's, you know, the schedules consolidation. And I know you worked on this in the engine room in the policy office at the Federal Acquisition Service, you know, when you were there uh, over the last few years. Um, so can you sort of talk about why it was done and, you know, maybe where we are in it? There's three phases and, you know, how do you think it positions GSA and the schedules program for the future? Okay. Uh, yeah, and actually, it's interesting. Not only was I there as they neared uh, completion uh, and, and get ready to issue the first solicitation, uh, the single solicitation, I was there when they tried it the first time, uh, which is probably around 2000. There was an effort to move to the, what's called the the corporate yeah, schedule, corporate, and then consolidated. Yeah, so the corporate yeah. schedule was going to be all schedules under one solicitation they issued that solicitation and it was it was voluntary and the thought was a lot of contractors with multiple contracts would move to the one didn't happen uh, partly because services in the services area a lot of companies had multiple contracts but they were managed in multiple locations also so they weren't they weren't managed centrally and it wasn't fees you know really feasible or desirable for them to go to one the other the big hiccup in that program at that time was yeah. the fact that GSA really wasn't fully electronic in its contracting process and you had so you were going to have multiple CEOs and they didn't want to sign for each other there was going to be one one that was signing for the work of others and they weren't comfortable with that so it, it really never got going and it defaulted to the consolidated schedule which was largely services with uh, with the IT schedule included and of course that later became the professional services solicitation uh, which went and they they actually fully consolidated all the services schedules at that time and that was about three or four years ago and then over the past uh, year and a half you know I, I think Stephanie Shutt did a fantastic job of leading the effort to come up with what we now have as the consolidated schedule it was like herding cats 
she got a team of representatives from each of the centers across the country, brought them together four times a year uh, for a year and a half. And they, they had a lot of good people on the team. They did a lot of good work. And while it may not be perfect, it's, I think, one of the better efforts. And I think industry largely agrees with that. And, and the idea is that if you have one solicitation, you have one central repository of all the terms and conditions, uh, a company has one contract number, even if they have multiple offerings uh, across what would have been different schedules. Uh, and in, in phase one, they just, issued the new solicitation uh, that was about a year ago, uh, 11 months, 11 months ago, it was October 1st last year. And then uh, phase two was in January of this year and they uh, transitioned existing contractors to the new schedule terms. And then phase three is in process now and that is to take the companies with multiple schedule contracts and truly consolidate them into one, one contract number. And the industry is going to be able to choose the contract that they prefer to be uh, the one that goes forward. And so they'll, with that, they'll be able to choose you know, they have three contracts that one has six years left, one has 10 and one has 14 years left. They can choose the one that has 14 years left and avoid, you know, what would have been a couple other um, nearer term efforts to exercise their option. and uh, or, or submit a new offer even, right? Or they can submit a new offer and get a 20 year contract. Right. Uh, um, so, it's, I think you, you, you touched on something that I don't peep, think people really realize the challenges. I think on the industry side, you see, you know, how it affects the companies, right? Whether, you know, consolidating the terms and conditions and what does that mean for a company, you know, and then if I have multiple contracts. I got to negotiate to GSA to get down to one. But, you know, that's one side that Stephanie had to deal with, the outside. Right. The side in GSA to your point about herding cats, just the challenges of a big organization and, and the unity of effort needed to get to where they had, you know, had the, you know, the right structure to do it. You know, they had to buy in from all the stakeholders. That's, you know, a huge challenge. And I think it's something that, you know, she pulled off beautifully. Yeah. I mean, you had the same time you had the small business, uh, the Jobs Act uh, being implemented over the period of the last 10 years. And one of the, the newer uh, aspects of that was the requirement to, in IDIQs that have a broad scope uh, and have multiple NAICS codes that you could only have one NAICS code per category. So many of the uh, existing GSA schedules, which were all SIN-based, special item number categories, uh, and most of those special item number categories had multiple SINs. So uh, what you have now is uh, there was a huge effort to analyze the SIN structure across all of the multiple schedules and then uh, sort of consolidate them where possible, group them uh, logically, 
and assign a single NAICS code to what became uh, sort of subcategories. So they have large categories and then subcategories. Uh, but yeah, so you have potentially changes to sizes for certain companies. Uh, when FPDSNG is updated to accommodate multiple SINs on IDIQs, which is in process, then- Beta.sam.gov, right? Yes, and uh, so the, the, a company will have not only multiple si uh, NAICS codes, but they may be different sizes for those NAICS. And the ordering CEO will designate the proper NAICS for the particular order, and uh, the company will, you know, the agency will achieve the socioeconomic and size uh, credit associated with that NAICS code for that company. And uh, today that doesn't happen, so that will better align orders with the, the, the size of the company doing most of the work. Well, that's going to be a huge benefit for customer agencies and for contractors as well to have a better handle on how that works. And that was quite an effort because it went from like 900 sort of quote sins and consolidated it down at 300, let's say. Yeah. Try to figure out how, how to apply the appropriate NAICS to that. That was a Herculean effort, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, and like I said, there was, and they went through all of the terms, conditions, they went through all of the clauses and all of the schedules and sort of went through a rationalization process to identify, you know, a, a set of terms, conditions and clauses, provisions that would work. And they redid the the language at the beginning of the schedule to tell people how it works. So they just went, they did an awful lot of work. And so what would you, um, what was one piece of advice for companies trying to navigate the consolidation that you'd give them? Well, I would, I would uh, have them understand that as they put their offer in, uh, it's generally going to go to uh, a CEO and a center, a legacy center, so to speak, where the bulk of the dollars are expected to be realized on that offer. So if most of it's IT, it probably will end up in the IT schedule. If they had multiple schedules, they may end up with a CEO that had their biggest one, but not guaranteed. So GSA is going to take in the offers and uh, with electronic contracting and you know, people are now all working at, uh, at home. But they can move offers around and manage workload, but they, they want to try to get most of the contracts with COs who are comfortable with the bulk of that offers uh, area of technology or service. Um, but I would also say that, you know, the GSA has never been accused of being completely consistent. Uh, so COs develop their own pet you know, way of doing stuff and why, what they want to see. And I'm, I'm hoping that this will drive uh, some training across the centers, because now that we have one solicitation, you have one common set of terms, conditions across that solicitation, there should be an effort to coordinate the practices of the COs across the country, because it has evolved uh, sort of by center, they have their own practices and they need to try to get away from that and go back to something that, because industry 
you know, it's just not fair to, for one CEO to say, well, I need this and uh, another company doesn't have to deal with it or has to deal with something more harsh. Uh, that's a big part of the, what I hear uh, in my current job. So I, I heard it when I was in GSA. I got lots of calls from industry complaining about, and I'll just say that GSA, I felt always has had a lot of great people a lot of people who really want to do the best they can for the taxpayer. Some might be a little overzealous. Some might not listen to all of the different perspectives that uh, come into play on a given offer. And I felt that, you know, when I was going out, it was one of the benefits I felt that I got was that I felt that I gained more when I went out and talked to either industry or mostly customers I gained a lot of knowledge about what was important and what to consider and what goes into uh, various aspects of the procurement process. And I, I feel that now GSA is not getting out as much. The CEOs don't have as that broader perspective. And I think uh, that hopefully will drive them to have more uh, meetings uh, across the centers, uh, perhaps they can continue what Stephanie put together and get a, a more uh, more of a consensus in the process that they utilize to award schedule contracts. I think that was one of the goals of this to try to gain greater consistency and across sort of learning and in, in sort of a, a, a single voice to industry. So hopefully that's a great observation. And, you know, we look forward to working with GSA on that. Um, we have one more segment, uh, Robin, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, recent Astro solicitation and the use of the authority to not cons- not have to consider price at the order contract level and focus on task order competitions. And also, you know, the advance notice of public rulemaking that was issued by GSA in August that dealt with uh, that authority and how to apply it to schedules program. I'm Andrew Walder. My guest today is Robin Bourne. Uh, Robin is a subject matter expert at the Gormley Group and a 30-year career acquisition professional at the General Services Administration. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guest today is Robin Bourne. Robin is a subject matter expert at the Gormley Group and uh, someone I've known for 30 years. And for the vast majority of that time, you were at GSA, Robin. Um, and mm-hmm. This And we've talked a lot about the schedules program. We talked about schedules consolidation. I think the last thing I really want to discuss with you is kind of the interesting development. Um, and that is, you know, um, I think it was the 2019, but don't quote me on NDA, whatever, is Section 876, which provided uh, civilian agencies and in, in specifically GSA with the authority to award multiple award IDAQ contracts uh, without the consideration of price and and instead focus on competition for agency-specific requirements at the task order level and, you know, that competition, you know, driving price and value. You know, it's it's an idea that's been out there for a long time. I know the SARA panel had a recommendation to do this on the IT schedule for IT professional services in particular. DOD has a similar authority, but more expansive. You know, the civilian agency authority is limited to labor hour service contracts. You know, and then there's been interesting, just to quickly level set, there's interesting developments over the last month. 
GSA issued the Astro solicitation, which is for drone technologies and other you know capabilities, cutting edge capabilities. And they used this new authority for purposes of the evaluation and award of the contract. So, you know, they're not going to be considering price at the, con- you know, at the contract award level. And there was a deviation issue to implement it, uh, far deviation to implement it for GSA for, for the contract in, you know, making deviations part 16. And then at the same time, there's a advanced notice of public rulemaking that was issued in August that asked for feedback on how GSA should implement it in the schedules program. And I know that's a long sort of introduction and a lot of detail. I apologize for that. But just what's your reaction to all that? You know, where is GSA going? It's kind of two different directions at the same time. Well, you mentioned the Sarah panel, and, I, and I, that's, that's where it certainly was first brought to light there. Uh, I think people had the thought maybe before, but what it really does is it, it acknowledges that solutions are priced at the task order. Uh, today's solution is, is is not yesterday's, and and what what one agency gets today, the next agency doesn't want it tomorrow. So uh, it puts all of the emphasis on uh, pricing at the task order, and it sort of very much de-emphasizes the the labor rate negotiated into a, a contract because it's only a very small portion of of, of that buy. So you you've got You've got a requirement that goes out that hopefully articulates clearly what the need is or what the problem to be solved is. Then you've got a company or companies that need to put together a responsive and uh, hopefully a solution. Uh, And that's priced. It's usually a combination of products and services. And it's not really an hourly rate is not even a real factor in that uh, proposal. So we need to get away from the hourly rates at the schedule level. There's a huge amount of time uh, spent going down a path that doesn't realize a lot of benefit in many in solutions anyway. So the authority that GSA uh, achieved with the 2019 NDAA is not equal to what DOD got. DOD has uh, really the authority to get solutions and not consider pricing at the contract level uh, for services and solutions are usually services with products involved. Uh, GSA authority is more limited, and the, the the deviation that they issued, I think, will allow that contract to uh, achieve this goal. But the Federal Register notice, uh, advanced rulemaking notice that went out, I found that I was saying to myself, well. GSA has the answer to uh, a lot of the questions that were posed in the Federal Register notice. I felt like, well, GSA either has the answers or the authority to take the action that's appropriate. And uh, I found it interesting that they would put those out there and not maybe uh, provide a little bit more uh, clarity on how they were going to use the authority and get comments on that. Yeah, I think that's an interesting observation, Robin, because I, I kind of had the same thought when I looked at the advance notice of public rulemaking. It's GSA in, a, in many ways is asking the public for a legal opinion as to what the authority is or isn't. And, you know, that's, you know, in my career looking at, you know, issuing those type of things and asking those kind of questions, 
you know, you typically put out, you know, the agency has the authority to interpret the statute and there's discretion given to that agency. Um, and you lay out, you know, you know, a baseline that you allow that you then get people to comment back on. And this is like wide open and literally asking for legal opinions as to what, you know, the scope of the authority is and how, and, and what, you know, can or can't be done. And, you know, I kind of left me scratching my head just because it seems to me this is a pers- authority GSA has been pursuing for several years now, and now they have it, and now they're asking, what does it mean? It's an interesting dynamic. Yes, it is. Uh, so in that regard, do you see, uh, you know, a timeline here where GSA could get to implementing the authority on the on the schedules program, you know, coming out of the advance notice of public rulemaking? Well, it, it's it's. I think it's going to be tricky. The fact that they've started that this way, uh, it's a good thing to it's start. It's a good thing to start. Uh, there was actually uh, an an effort to try to uh, get something going while while I was still in GSA. I've been gone what eleven months, uh, and I, I guess now that they've they've sort of defaulted to going out in this manner to get some input from industry. Uh, I think the key is that. If, if GSA wants the schedules to uh, position, be positioned to truly facilitate solutions, uh, which has always been possible, but it's always been the more creative government contracting officers who have been comfortable doing that. Uh, I think too many government CEOs feel like every single line item on a proposal has to marry up to a specific line item on the contract. Uh, it's helped out a little now with order level materials. Uh, so I think, I think uh, if, if they can move to get some aspect of this implemented, uh, and I don't know whether it fits well. I know we talked to customer agencies. Some wanted to see pricing, some wanted to see unpriced. So you have that dilemma. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, I think some contractors probably feel the same way, maybe because they know their customers do. So it's not an easy thing to tackle, but I think uh, with DOD having a broader authority, if GSA needs to work as quickly as possible to try to get something uh, incorporated into the schedules program that will better facilitate uh, solutions pricing. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think we'll, we'll leave it at that. We're, we're at the end of the show, Robin. And, um, you know, I want to thanks. Thank you for coming on. Um, I appreciate it. It's great discussion. Well, I, I enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's a lot to try to squeeze into a short time frame. Uh, as I think we talked before, we could probably both talk for a day or two about this stuff, but right, it's, sure. it's, well, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Robin. So that just lends itself. I'll have to have you back on we'll, in a bit. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I want to thank my guest today, Robin Bourne, subject matter expert at the Gorman Group and a 30 year GSA acquisition professional. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.